All right, do we have any old movie buffs in the audience? Any old movie buffs? Not too many, a lot in the last service. Some of you just don't want to admit it. Of course, the question becomes, what is an old movie? I want to talk about 1994, 25 years ago, that makes it an old movie. 1994 was an outstanding year for movies. I married an old movie buff, so I became one by default. Uh, Schindler's List won the uh, Academy Award for Best Picture. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. Make sure your tissue box is full, though. That's the best I can tell you. Another very emotional movie that year, uh, Tom Hanks won the Academy Award for Best Actor in Philadelphia. The same year, there was a very, very odd film that was re uh, released, and both the starring actor and actresses were nominated but did not win the awards for Best Actor and Actress. Emma Thompson was nominated for the Best Actress, and uh, Anthony Hopkins was nominated for Best Actor. And the name of the movie is called Remains of the Day. If you haven't seen it, it's really, really a great, great movie, although I'm going to spoil the uh, part of the movie for you right now. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, who if, if Tom Hanks had not been in Philadelphia that year, was probably the go-away winner. He's just such a great actor. And uh, he, he plays a butler by the name of Stevens at a very, very large English estate in the 1930s. And he's so blinded by his duties. He is so blinded by his job. Think of sort of a Downton Abbey type estate. He's so blinded by the importance of his employer and his need to serve the employer that he doesn't notice a lot of what's going on. In fact, when his employer invites all these important guests from all over Europe, he is, he is just so enamored with them, he is blinded to what is going on. And as he's serving them food, he's not paying attention to what they're talking about. And it comes later on, he was oblivious to the fact that his employer was hosting the Nazis. <laughs> and so he had no idea that that was going on. Now you might ask, how could anybody be so blind? How could anybody be so deceived but according to Jesus, it happens quite regularly in the house of the Lord. It happens quite regularly in the church. Last week, we began this section of Matthew chapter 23, and we said that the greatest danger to the church does not come from the outside. We like to talk about, oh, the government, they're after us. Oh, the culture, they're ruining everybody. But Jesus is teaching us that the greatest danger comes from the inside of the church, and so here in Matthew 23, he's in the temple. It's only a matter of days before Jesus is going to die on the cross. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the crowds. He's done speaking with the religious leaders. Presumably some of them are still hanging around listening to them about this danger that is inside the church. And he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders. Jesus' words are scorching. They are hard they are severe. Jesus is telling the truth, and if you will, he is throwing gasoline on the fire of the hatred the religious leaders already have towards Jesus. Jesus' teaching is essentially this, that the religious leaders are blind to the things of God, and by extension, since they're blind to the things of God, so are the people that follow them. They are blind 
to the things of God. And so Jesus has been pronouncing woes upon them. And what's a woe? Woe is a, is a curse and a judgment. So if you're a guest with us here today, I just want to warn you up front, it is only so encouraging you can be with woes and judgment. Wouldn't you agree? Years ago, we had these guys visit, and on the way out, they said to me, uh, thanks, we, we, we like the free coffee, we like the band, we, we liked everything about the church, but we didn't, we didn't find the message particularly encouraging. I said, it was the beheading of John the Baptist. Um, so <laughs> that's one of the things that happens when you go through the Bible verse by verse. You're just going to come across certain things that, that may not exactly uh, teach you uh, much about your life. And, you know, the, the, the crux of the message was, serve God, you might lose your head. But they didn't like that. So today the title of our message is From Woes to Worship, Part 2, Part 1 being last week. Well, we pick it up in verse 16 where Jesus is uh, showing us how the religious leaders use different ways too. And the first thing he talks about is to hide behind the truth, to hide behind the truth. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Can you believe Jesus calls people that? Like he needs a little lesson on how to communicate or something like that. But no, Jesus did talk like that. Fools and blind, for which is greater? So he has a question for them. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Verse 18, he gives us another example of how they would lie and hide from the truth. And whoever swears, verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. He asks another question. For which is greater, the gift or, on the, or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So, just imagine, go back to the time you were a kid. Some of you are kids. Some of you are kids at heart. And uh, some of the things that people used to do when they were younger. Somebody would ask you about something. Do you promise to do this? Do you swear this is the truth? Or something like that. And you would say, I cross my heart and hope to die. Not a lot of dead people walking around with that one. Another one people used to say is, I swear on my mother's Grave. Happy Mother's Day, right? Like, I don't, I don't understand that. I, don't, I never really understood that one. That meant that you were absolutely, positively telling the truth. But then when you got caught in a lie, does anybody remember what kids do when they get caught in a lie? They pull their hand from behind their back and they go, I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> so they do whatever they got to do out of fulfilling their word, their word. And that was simply playing tricks with the truth. And Jesus says these supposed men of God are doing the same thing. They're lying. They're making vows. They're making promises. But they're saying the words that they used in making the promises decide, that helps us decide whether they are binding or not. And so let's go through what he said. Jesus said, according to them, they say, if they swear by the temple, it's not binding. 
But, but you told me you would do it. I said, I swear by the temple I'll do it for you. But I only swear by the temple. It's not binding. But if I swear by the gold in the temple, oh, then I have to do it. Then it's binding. Or they say if they swear by the altar. I swear by the altar in the temple. Nope, you don't have to do it. You can get out of that one. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, then yes, you have to do it. Quite simply, it goes like this. Jesus wants his people to tell the truth. That's simple, isn't it? It's real simple. He wants our word to be able to be kept and, and to realize that the temple, and this is important for us and an insult to God, the temple represented the presence of God. So when the temples were knocked over, they, 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 they lamented. They were sad because that meant the presence of God had left the people. And that was what was important, the presence of God, not the gold. Not the stuff that people brought into the temple was the fact that God himself was there. And so to swear by the temple was to swear by God. But they would say, well, you could get out of that one. In the same way, he would, Jesus is saying, it's, it's, it's not the altar that, that makes the gift holy. It, 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 I mean, it, it's, it's not the gift that makes the altar holy. It's the, it's the altar that's holy. And the same is true for the things that we do for God. What makes the things that we do for God... If you're a Christian, if you're not, we're glad that you're here. But for a Christian, what makes it meaningful is because they're done in response to the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's not the gift that we bring to God that's important. It's the fact that Christ was sacrificed, if you will, on the altar of Calvary. And so what was happening was religious leaders were trying to be clever and sound religious and get out of what they had promised. So they would say, if I, if I swear by heaven, I can get out of that, not realizing how insulting that is to God. Jesus says, because when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God. You're swearing by God himself to keep your word. And religious blindness fails to see that all of these different things that we have and, and the things that, different things that they had in the temple were things that were meant to point people to God. Not one of them were more important than God. God was more important than any of them, than the gold, than their gifts, than whatever it is that they brought in and offered. And following Jesus involves living in accountability to God. Jesus wants from us a simple yes or no and follow through on what we say we're going to do. And that's all God requires of us. But here we see the scripture-twisting religious leaders often lack that personal accountability to God that they expect from others. And some of us grew up in a system like that where, where the religious leaders, they had the high bar set at seven feet for the people in the church, and they lived at one feet. And, and whenever you questioned what was going on with them, you were told, don't question them. They're holy men of God. It, it's different for them. And so nobody was ever allowed to say anything. And then, then all these scandals come about. And people go, how did all these scandals come about? Because nobody ever said anything. And if people said anything, they were told to shut up. And they were told not to worry about such things. And so Jesus says here, they even set up a lying system Ways to justify their sin. And so what are some ways that they would do that today in our day? What, what do they hear? You hear people say this. You just need to submit to the pastor. 
you haven't heard that from me. I think if I have to say that to you, then what's the point, right? And, and I think the Bible teaches it's clear in Ephesians that we are to submit one to another. And, and so when people say you have to submit to the pastor, so the pastor's doing stupid, goofy, wrong, dumb things, and you're supposed to submit to it. Well, some places, yes, you are. But that's not true at all. Other people say, thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. I mean, okay, are you kidding me? Like, all right, I might say that to you if you have a baseball bat and you're coming at me. I might, I might, I might break that out then. But let's be realistic. In the Old Testament, the Lord's anointed with the kings. It's not the pastor. Besides the fact, you know, if you're a pastor or, or a religious leader or a ministry leader or something like that, you don't, you don't tell, tell people that you're the Lord's anointed. Other people might say that about you, that you're anointed, but you don't, you don't go around saying that about yourself. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. And Jesus calls such people blind guides. And remember what he said last week, blind guides will lead their blind followers into a ditch. So what is the application for all of us? Simple application. Don't make promises or commitments that you can't keep. Sometimes we answer too quickly, don't we? Sometimes we say we can do something, and then we go home and we think about it, and we go, oh, I really can't do that. Don't answer right away. And sometimes people say, well, I need an answer right now. And you have to say, well, you know what? I can't give you one right now. I've got to, I've got to check into some things. Husbands, don't say I have to check with your wife. That is not cool. That is not cool. Say I have to check my calendar, <laughs> right? And, and you don't want to make your wife look bad. There's just some things that you're not going to be able, be able to do. And sometimes it happens. You make a commitment and you can't keep it. Doesn't that happen? That happens to all of us. Well, here's what we should do with that. Or you don't want to do it. Don't drop it in somebody else's lap. Don't be just like, well, I can't make it here. Oh, I can't do it here. Try not to do that. You know, try to give some advance notice. You know, it's, it's, you work, you've all worked with people and they've, and they've called out sick. And they're like, oh, I forgot. I was maid of honor in a, in a wedding in Colorado this past weekend. You're like, what? <laughs> right? That doesn't happen overnight. right? I just wanted to say I didn't notify anybody. And so try not to dump it in, in people's laps at the last minute. Give advance notice. And do whatever you can do to help make it right. Young people, key to success in the, in the working world. The more advance notice you can give your boss and then remind them the week before they'll know that you care about the job. So I get 5% if you get a promotion and a raise on that one, just for that little bit of advice. But it will go a long way. Jesus wants his people to be known for their reliability and their dependability. And I will tell you something, if you come to this church regularly, if you look around at some of the people who volunteer their time here, you will see tremendous examples of that of people who keep their word and people who can be trusted. Well, verse 23 and 24, he moves into another section that I would call uh, don't major on the minors. And, and religious uh, people often do that. He says, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, why is he calling them a hypocrite this time? For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Now, those are just herbs that grow in the garden and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you have ought to have done, those small things, the tithing of the, of the, of the herbs, 
without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, you sit there and go, what in the world is he talking about there? Well, this would be one of those times when uh, I always like to picture little kids uh, reading the Bible with their, with their mom and their dad and their bedtime stories, and, and they know what's going on in their culture, and they're absolutely just laughing about it. And so we'll get to that in one second. So let's imagine that you're going on a tour. Uh, you go to some president, president's house or something like that, and you're going to go on a tour, and, and the guide says to you, this is my first time leading anyone on a tour, and I've had no training, uh, but I do want to tell you something, I am blind. So now, would you expect that you would miss some things on the tour? You expect you would miss the things along the way, um, and that's what Jesus says you have here. These guys are blind guides. Now, an important element of Jewish worship was tithing. What, some of you know what tithing is, some of you don't. Some of you have nightmares about it, so we'll see what we can do about that. Um, the tithing is giving 10% of your income uh, to the house of the Lord for the work of the Lord. But there was three tithes in Israel, uh, two that they did each year and one that they did every three years. But it's also how they ran the governments, how they supported the church. It's how they cared for one another. So it's, it's an intricate system that we don't have today. Now, there was no Old Testament regulation regarding the tithing of herbs in your garden. So your, your, your poor wife's growing herbs to make the, the, the food uh, taste a little bit better. Or maybe she has a gardener. She's growing them in the windowsill or something like that. And, and, the, and the, you know, the religious leader comes along and says, well, I need 10% of that. Give me 10% of that because I got to bring that in. I got to tie that. And, and so uh, it, it weighed nothing. That's the whole idea of you're neglecting the weightier matters. You're so concer concerned with the light matters. But the religious leaders did it. And Jesus says, I got no problem with that. See, there's no problem with you adding extra things that you want to do for God into your faith until you think those things are what's going to make God happy with you. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, he's happy with you. You don't look convinced. That's the problem. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he is happy with you. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. Put your trust in Jesus Christ today, and you'll be in the happy class. Okay? And so he is happy with you. you don't, there's nothing you're going to do to do that. But if you decide, hey, I want to do this as a personal discipline, something for myself, something that reminds me a little bit more about God, there, there is nothing wrong with that. Jesus says, that's fine. That's good that you do that. You should do that. But Jesus' problem is, is you're so particular about those little things while you neglect the things that are more important. You're so concerned about the light little herbs, tithing them, that you're not but you're not concerned with the weightier matters, the things that are more important. Uh, Micah 6.8 says this in the Old Testament. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? That's a good question. You ever want to know what the Lord requires of you? He tells us right here. Here's the answer. But to do justly to be just towards people, to be a man or a woman of your word, to be, to be caring for people, to love mercy, to be willing to grant mercy to people who don't deserve it, to be thankful for the mercy that God has given to you, and to walk humbly with your God. He says that's what God is looking for from you. And Jesus, looking at them, they would have, they would have known this verse and verses similar to it in the Old Testament, and how bad... Did the religious leaders miss it? 
Well, this is, this is where the kids would be laughing at the bedtime stories. What they would do would be, they would, let's say they would make wine, and they had gnats. They didn't have screens. One of the greatest inventions of mankind was the screen. It didn't come along until much later. Just imagine how many mosquito bites and stuff like that people got in the middle of the night. We get one, and we're like, oh, where's the spray? Right? This was, this was their life. And so, and so they would make wine, and because it was sweet, the gnats would come into the house. They would just fly in, and they would fly into the, they would fly into the wine. So what they would do is they would take the wine, and they would pour it through a cloth, and the gnats wouldn't make it through the cloth, so they would strain the gnats out, and then they would drink down the wine. Jesus would say, you're careful about straining the wine, but didn't you realize that you're choking on something as you're drinking the wine? Because you didn't, you didn't strain the camel out of the wine. In the same way, they would do the same thing with soup. You know how they strained the soup? They drank the soup, and they used their teeth to strain the gnats. Mmm, tasty, isn't it? All the girls are like, ooh, right? And so that's how they would do that. You're like, I'm never having soup again, Pastor Jim. Thank you. Really, really thank you for that. And so Jesus says, you're so worried about swallowing this little tiny bug. But when it comes to swallowing a camel, both unclean animals, both unclean, unclean insect, unclean animal. You're not even worried about that at all. And it's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to get so hyped up about small issues. Now, they might be important. I'm not saying they're not important, but we forget the mission. Now, there's a lot of small issues that he impede the mission, for sure. But it's so important to keep the mission out in front of us. And it's interesting. It's not, it's not even always that the weightier matters are harder. It's just we forget what the weightier matters are. Now, here he's talking about tithing, and uh, you know, I know for most Americans, it's very hard for them to part with their money. We, we, have, you know, we, have, we have a lot of bills, of course. You know, I, whenever I get my credit card bill, I always say, how much of this was necessity and how much was this spending on myself? So just a personal discipline that, that, I, that I practice, and there's nothing wrong with spending money on yourself. But what Jesus is saying here is, but you're so worried about these little things, these little religious things, that you're forgetting the weightier matters. You're forgetting what's most important. And, and, and short as it is, this is the central woe of all the woes. And the Bible often works that way. It works from beginning to the central and then central to the end. And a lot of times in these things, the central part is the, is the key. And so it's the central part. And Jesus is saying that the heart of the matter is that you are missing the essential intent of the word of God. You're so worried about the little things that you're missing the essential, most important things about the Old Testament, which was their Bible, and the law of Moses. This reveals to us one of the greatest problems with man-made religion is that it puts human rituals over divine decrees. That it gets us so involved in rituals that we forget the heart of what God wants or what God use, uses to point to us to certain rituals. So you take communion and you say, I did good today, I took communion. That's not what's important. What's important is what communion points to. The, the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And so they were, they were seemingly lost in these things. They had lost sight, the religious leaders, of their responsibility given by God 
to and for the people of God. And what was their responsibility? Their responsibility was to teach them the word of God. That was their responsibility. Their responsibility was to teach the people how to be righteous, to bring righteousness into the world. Their responsibility was not to bring endless religious activity into the church, into the temple. That was not their, that was not their responsibility. And the religious leaders were not known for justice and mercy towards the people of God. If anything, Jesus really accused them of not caring for the people, which would be due to what? A lack of humility towards God, a lack of faith in God. And so what's the result? Both the religious leaders and their followers became spiritually blind. Jesus' warning to all of us is clear. Don't be like them and don't follow them. It's very dangerous. Now, I'm trying to save myself a bunch of emails this week, so I know they're coming. I'm going to get emails. What about tithing today? Uh, because he mentioned that some of you are like, please don't talk about it. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think that's Jesus' point, but that may be your point now. You may have just all of a sudden just gone to there and, and you want to know about that. First off, I really want to thank the people who give money to the church here. We couldn't do this without you. We don't want to have to charge for coffee and charge for this and charge for that. And, and we like the fact that we can give stuff away. And so we're very thankful for that. And you have a part in that blessing. And we are very thankful. I'm glad that I don't have to get up here each week and, and twist your arm like, oh, if you don't give money, this ministry is going to close. You know, it's like, please close. Please do us all a favor. And so, and so I'm very thankful for that. But, but the idea of giving to the Lord's work is a very important thing. It's a very important thing. So a couple scriptures on that. First, I would say this. Giving should be systematic and proportional. Systematic and proportional. 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of the week, that would be systematic. Now, some of you are saying, oh, no, I give monthly. That's systematic. Some of you say, oh, no, I give online, and I have a program to, to give from my credit card or from my bank account or something like that. That would be systematic. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. That would be proportionate. For, for some of you, if you were to give 10% of your income right now, you'd probably be homeless. For some of you, you make so much money, 10% does not even put a dent in it, doesn't even make you feel uncomfortable. God's like, nope, more for you. And so, uh, you know, sometimes I've said to some people here who are in tough spots in the church, um, I said to them, listen, I'll make you a deal. You put in $10 in the offering box, and we'll give you $50 worth of free food. That's a good deal, right? That's a good deal. Just so you are participating in the work of the Lord. It's a very important thing. He says that there be no collections when I come. And so what does that mean? He was, he was collecting money for the poor, but they also needed to support the ministry. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want to have to come here and beg for money. I don't want to have to come here for beg and beg for money. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. If, if God wants this thing to go, then it will go. If God wants it to close, then God wants it to close. I'm, I'm not going to get up here and beg for money, make you feel guilty, twist your arms, never have done it since we started here, no, don't intend to start to do it again. There's a box in the back. You want to give money? That's fine. You, want, you don't want to give money? That's up to you. These are things that you're going to have to settle between, between you and God. 
Now, there's a bit of selfishness in giving money, at least on my part, so I'll tell you what it is. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, interesting, earlier in that thing, he says, if you want a big, if you want a big harvest, you have to sow a lot. So if you want a big harvest, then you have to throw a lot out there. So it depends upon how big your harvest wants to be on that. Uh, but here he says that God loves a cheerful giver. This is a very rare moment and a rare statement in the Bible where God says that he has a special love for a cheerful giver. I don't know about you. I want that special love. I just do. So he says, don't give begrudgingly. Don't feel like you're, you have to do it. God will, if God wants the thing to happen, he'll make it happen. But, but he has a special place in his heart for cheerful givers. I call them vonage givers. Remember those old vonage commercials? Woo-hoo, woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Right? They're walking up to the box, and they're thrilled to have the opportunity to give to the work of, of the Lord. Now, um, if you want more information on this stuff, on both of those passages, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 9-7, you can go on our website or you can go to the info table and say you want the CDs on it, and we will give you the teachings on that. And so some of you want to know more. Some of you are like, please move on. Well, the please move on crowd is going to, is going to win right now. Verse 25 and 26. Uh, Jesus then goes after their attempt to be ritually clean outwardly, neglecting their hearts inwardly. Ritually clean outwardly, neglecting their hearts inwardly. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Why do you call them the hypocrites this time? For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion. Another version says robbery. Another version says greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Now, again, this is one of those things where I think the little Hebrew kids would be laughing the little, the little kids in the Roman Empire, the, the, the new Christians think when they, when they read this, they would be laughing. What's going on here? They washed everything by hand. They didn't have a dishwasher or, or any, uh, you know, didn't have all the, some of the things that we have today. And so just imagine this. Somebody's drinking their soup and they put it in the sink and somebody takes it and just washes the inside of the cup. So there's all dried stuff in the bottom. And then they serve up more soup to people and when they get to the bottom of the soup bowl, they see all the dried food that's on the bottom. Mmm, yummy. <laughs> yummy. More commercials for soup. Now, so the idea is we're supposed to think that's gross. I think Jesus is saying this is, this is not, something is, is really wrong here with that. And that's what he's saying the hearts of these religious leaders look like. So what is he saying? They were, they were meticulous with what people could see but gave far less attention, if any attention, to the inner person. They looked good on the outside, but their hearts were in a bad place. Now, there was lots of rituals for washing. Whenever there's rituals for washing in the Bible, you know the religious leaders are debating these things on end, and they're missing the spiritual intentions of such things that they needed to be clean on the inside. And Jesus' accusations here are absolutely startling. Remember last week with ripping off the widows? This is how startling this is. He says, you try to look so pious. You try to look so holy. But it's all a game. It's all a facade. 
I, 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 heaven knows what it is. You're not using it because you're trying to be holy before God. You use it as a tool to rip people off. And you're using it as a tool to indulge yourselves so people are impressed with you and you can go around doing whatever you want. Jesus' point is simply this. There is no amount of ceremonial ritual and detail that can cover your dishonesty and your self-indulgence and your sin. All of us, we can put on the biggest act, the biggest show, but there's no covering it up. The Lord sees their motives. He sees how self-absorbed they are, how self-serving they are, and how they manipulate others instead of serving others. And we think, okay, you know, we're, we must be talking about, the, the, you know, again, the religious guys in our society with the long robes and the big hats and the, the canes and the smelly incense going around. And that's what he must be talking about. But couldn't it be more than that? I mean, people can, people can look good on Sundays, but what are we pouring into our hearts during the week? And, and, and do we really care about people? Not to mention right now in Christianity, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hype, a lot of hip, coolness, all this kind of stuff. A lot of showiness. I don't mean to sound like an old fogey. Really, really borderline disrespectful, some of it. Pastors, again, we said last week, strutting around the stage like peacocks, drawing all the attention to themselves and not to God. And if we're not careful, we can get sucked into the hype of Christianity and think that we met with God. In reality, we just met with ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drew a sharp, the sharp distinction between outward appearances and inward reality. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So what's the solution? You say, okay, I, I do this. What's the solution? The solution is, by the grace of God, clean the inside of the cup first. You say, how, how do you do that? By the grace of God. He's got to do it, yes. You come to God and you ask him for whatever the issue is, whatever the problem is, you say, God, I can't do this by myself. You and I both know this. I need your help. I need you to be with me at the moment of truth. And that moment of truth comes and you do the right thing. That moment of truth comes and you run away from that sin. The moment of truth comes. You're, you're, you know what's wrong. You know the right thing to do. You don't let your mind go there. You don't let yourself go there. You don't do it, and you run away. And then what do you do? You get in your car. You get in your room. You get in your bed, wherever you are, and you thank God because that was God's grace. That was God's grace. You said, but I did it. Yes, empowered by God's grace. You see, what happens is when you begin to clean the inside of the cup, the innermost being the heart, the outside starts to get cleaned up. You know, it's one of the things I really love about, about being a Christian is that, is that you can be real. You can be real. You can, you can admit your faults. You don't have to put on a show for people. You, you, just, you, just can, you can be who you are. doesn't mean you want to stay that way. doesn't mean God wants us to stay that way. We all have a lot, lot to improve on. 
If you don't think you have a lot to prove on you, improve on, you are very deceived. You need to talk to the people you live with. They'll tell you. And, and if they don't, ask some of the people in the church, they'll tell you. We all have things that we need to improve on. But, but we don't have to depend upon our image. We don't have to depend upon our good works. Instead, we put our trust in Christ and the grace of God. And that's how we begin to move forward. That's how the inside becomes clean and then outwardly things get better. Verse uh, 27 and, and 28 is very similar. It, it, it's, it's sort of, um, whereas before it was, was trying to look clean on the outside and neglecting the heart, this has to do with, with working so hard to look good and trying to deceive people. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside, interesting, he goes, you appear righteous to men. They're buying it. They are buying it. But heaven knows differently. But inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what are they doing? We might say, he might say, you're wearing a mask. You're trying to look righteous, but heaven is going to take that mask off someday because we know what's underneath that mask. And so similar to the last woe, uh, in their desire to appear righteous, they worked so hard at it, they ended up becoming wicked. And I can't imagine how exhausting it must have been for them, trying to keep up that veneer all the time. Of, of being righteous. And, uh, I told the last service, you know, sometimes I'll go to a place and you meet people from different countries and usually if I, a, a waiter or a waitress, I'll either tell them about the radio station or I'll invite them to church or I'll give them a card or something like that. And how many times people have said, um, oh, I didn't realize, I'll tell them I'm a pastor, like, I didn't realize I was waiting on a holy man. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I didn't realize it either. <laughs> And here's my wife's number. Tell her. She'll set you straight on this one. And, but they, all of a sudden, this whole thing changes. And it's like, it's like, no, I'm just a dude. That's it. And they're like, oh, oh, I'll, I'll pay for your bill. I'm like, you're going to pay for my bill. And I'm going to give you a big tip because you did a great job. And so sometimes people, they put on this facade. And the more you put on the facade, I don't know how you can keep up with that. I mean, it's just so exhausting. Now, here's what he's talking about here. If you touch death, you could not participate in the Passover. And so he talks about dead man's tombs. And have you ever spent much time in graveyards? Much time in graveyards, yes. I grew up down the street from one. So um, there was a sign that said no trespassing. So what did we do? We trespassed. And so... <laughs> Now, if you're young, don't do that. I was, I was a total rank-and-file pagan back then. Um, now I'm still tempted, but I don't do it. Um, but anyway, they had these, they had these big uh, mausoleums. They would have, they're like these little sheds, really, and they were made of cement. And you could actually look inside them, and you could actually see the caskets. And so sometimes there'd be some empty shelves, and you're like, oh, there's space for somebody soon. And so we would look inside them. And, but don't think that's what that is. That's not what he's talking about here. 
Back in the ancient world, people didn't have money for that stuff. Most of the people were poor. By far, most of the people were poor. And so what they did was they just buried people in the ground, and they threw rocks, upon, rocks over the grave. But what would happen would be sometimes there would be paths on the way to Jerusalem that, that these graves would be on. And so you couldn't participate in, in Passover again if you had touched death. So what they would do was one month before the Passover, they would go out and paint the rocks. So you would know by the whitewashed tombs, the whitewashed rocks, oh, there's a grave under those rocks. I can't walk over them because they thought if I walked over them or walked over that ground that I would be pronounced unholy. I would not be able to participate in the Passover. So basically, they were painting roadside burial plots. And, and um, it made an unkept plot look good and clean. But if you were to dig underneath, what would you find? Death, uncleanness. Jesus says to these religious leaders, this is exactly what you are like. You look like you're trying to obey God's law, or you look like you obey God's law. You look all righteous. You look all religious. But I know what's on the inside. I know if I get beyond the veneer of the whitewashed rocks, I know what's inside. Decay and death. I know that you are dead to the things of God. But Jesus knows that the religious leaders, while they are whitewashing themselves, are gaining a following of unsuspecting and deceived people who think these guys really are what they think, what they're pretending to be. Now, the religious leaders were the most educated guys in the society, they're no dummies. We think, oh, those stupid guys. No, these guys are not dummies. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is looking at them saying, you are a source of uncleanness, and in your uncleanness and your spiritual death, you contaminate people. And they might buy it, but I'm not. That's what he's saying to them. You wonder, why did they kill him? Why did they kill him? Because in their own house, he's making them look terrible. Jesus does not want this for any of us loved ones. Instead of an identity in religious rituals or religious externals, he wants us to have an inner identity in Jesus Christ himself. And our self-worth is not to be made up of how we look or what we do, but who we are in Christ. If you were here last Wednesday or you listened to it, we talked about this. We said, you know, we have our own self-image, our own identity, and it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. One minute we think we're pretty good. The next minute we're like, the world will be a better place without me. Jesus says, why don't you just give that up? Find the stable, steady identity in me. Enjoy life. And not be so worried about your image. Verse 29 through 32, he says to them, basically, you pretend to honor the prophets, but you are just like the people who killed them. 
Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. What happened? Their forefathers killed the prophets and they, and they knew it. And then what did they do? They built, they built tombs to the prophets and they're going, oh, if we had been around, we would have known it was the word of the Lord. We would have figured it out. We would have never killed them. Verse, 34, verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus knows they're planning to kill him. And verse 32 is serious stuff. He says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. You know what he's saying there? He's egging them on. He says, guess what? Go for it. Go for it. You killed all the, your forefathers killed all the prophets. Now I've told you the parables of God sending his son, how you killed the prophets, sent his son, and now you killed the son. He's egging them on. Go for it. Go for it. Why don't you complete it? The completion of everything is here with, with the arrival of Jesus. But he warns them, the wrath of God will be upon you. The wrath of God will be upon you. Their forefathers killed God's prophet. Jesus, Jesus says to them, you are so arrogant. You say to yourselves, oh, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have done that. Jesus says, 100% you would have. Jesus knows that if this pack of religious leaders had heard the fiery men of God that the prophets were, those dudes were fiery, calling them out, calling them false shepherds, calling them phony religious people, calling them to repent. Jesus says, you'd have killed them too. You'd have killed them too. And I hate to say this, but this is, this is prevalent in our country among people who would say they're Christians. You hear people who say, you know, oh, we, 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 we love the, the dead men and women who, who preach the truth of the word of God. I hear certain people who have what we might call a casual faith, and, and they'll, they'll talk about certain authors. They're like, oh, I love A.W. Tozer. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, oh, I do. I go, no, you don't. And they're like, what do you mean I don't? I go, you've never read him. Because if you read him, you would realize that he calls you a phony Christian on almost every page of his writings. Oh, I love Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. Somebody gave that to you for Christmas and it's still sitting in your bathroom and you haven't cracked it. Because if you did, you wouldn't love it. Every, every day you would be convicted by, by, by what this guy is speaking, the truth of God's word and how God's people are so casual about living it. And we could go on and on through history of people who are fiery for God. Re reading the prophets, fiery. But people don't want to hear that stuff. They don't want to, they don't want to hear that. And, they, and they, they dishonor the people today. What are you going on about repentance? What are you going on about sin? I want to know how God can make me happy. Don't tell me any of that silly stuff. Oh, but we love the writers of old. We love them. We love the prophets of old, Jesus. Here's what Jesus is telling them. You guys, to be honest, are more interested in the prophets' tombs than you are their message. And I know it because you're planning to kill me. 
You see, the religious leaders saw themselves as the heirs to the prophets. Jesus says, listen, you're not the heirs to the prophets. You're the heirs to those who kill the prophets. And soon you're going to kill the Messiah. You're going to kill the God become a man, Emmanuel, God with us any day now. Once again, God's biggest enemies are in the church. Blind leaders with no self-awareness at all. With no awareness of the things of God. Verse 33. Oh, he's going to go easy on them now, you think. Serpents, brood of vipers. Ooh. He just said, you're snakes. And guess what? Your parents were snakes too. Your fathers who killed the prophets, they were snakes too. How can you escape, escape the condemnation of hell? You think, oh, Jesus would never talk like that. Yes, except when he does. He's saying, because of your hard hearts, unless you repent, you will be going to hell just like your forefathers. You want to know where they are? Jesus is telling them, you want to know where they are? You want to know where all these great guys you thought were so wonderful? You want to know where they killed the prophets? You want to know where they are? I'll tell you where they are. They're in hell. You want to see them? You're going to go see them soon unless you change your, your perspective on me. Therefore, indeed, I. You might want to circle that I in your Bible. That is very important. Jesus doesn't say God. He says I. He's going to say it four times. Therefore, indeed, I send you, and the verb tense is, I have been sending you, and I will continue to send you. Similar wording in Jeremiah 7. Indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. I'm sending you and will keep sending you people who bring the word of the Lord to you. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, and persecute from city to city. Did that happen? Yeah, it's called the book of Acts. It's called church history. Now, you say, well, that doesn't happen in our country. Enough people are made fun enough, made fun of enough just for bringing the word of the Lord to people. Verse 35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, book of Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, Last book of the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles, we might say from the beginning, the Old Testament to the end, or Abel to Zechariah, we would say A to Z, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus is like, you actually killed him in the house of the Lord. That's how bad things were. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So what is Jesus saying? You have seen everything that happened in the scriptures. You have seen the way they treated the prophets. You have, you have seen all of this. And you have chosen not only a similar path, you are in the process of choosing a worse path. You saw the culmination of salvation history in the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth and you rejected the Messiah you rejected the Lord himself. Now, I don't know about you, but right about now, I'm starting to get pretty angry. I'm thinking about these religious leaders 
the nerve of killing the prophets, the nerve of deceiving all these people, the nerve that they're going to kill Jesus himself, the nerve that they continue to deceive people and make excuses after excuses for even for crimes that they commit, and all the people that are covering up their crimes that they commit. And look at verse 37 through 39 as we see Jesus' emotional response and Jesus' last words to the crowds before the cross. Next week we start in some of the most controversial stuff regarding the end of the age in, in Matthew 24 and 25. But this is the, that's with his disciples. This is the last thing he says to the crowds. Now sometimes we have to be careful in our Bible reading Sometimes we read, like, you know, 5.30 in the morning, you read, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When you hear, when you hear that double speak in the Bible, that means it's, it's emotionally charged. Think of, of, if you know the Old Testament story of, of David losing his son Absalom, who was a traitor, and crying out, oh, Absalom, Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. By the way, that is the gospel. <laughs> that, that God cries out to people, would that I die instead of you. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I, not God, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What is he saying? I wanted to care for you. I wanted to protect you. And then look at these bone-chilling words, but you were not willing God weeping over the rejection of people who he's offered everything to. Even though we've sinned against him, he's offered us everything. And, and we reject him. He says, but you were not willing. And here's the consequences, verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is symbolically going to leave the temple. It's going to abandon the house of the Lord. In 70 AD, the place will be leveled. Verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you say, wait a minute, that, we covered that already. He, that's what they, the people said in, on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry. Well, he's quoting again the Old Testament, Psalm 118.26 but he's not looking backwards to that day. He's looking forward to that day when the risen Savior returns. Now, here's the question. For you, will that be a day of great joy or of great sorrow? Will that be a day of excitement or will that be a day of great regret? Jesus expresses sorrow at the rejection of him as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. Jesus laments over the consequences of their unbelief. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. The place is going to be desolate. There's an old expression, love leaves when love is not wanted. And God says, you don't want me? I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of God. I'm not going to force myself on you. And I will leave. I'm amazed at Jesus' love and desire for people to put their trust in him, even his enemies. 
I mean, it is, it is absolutely undeniable. And here's the difference. This is why I need a Savior. Here's the difference between me and God and probably between most of us and God. I'm angry about this, and he weeps over it. I think, who do these people think they are? And he's still begging them to come to him up to the very last second. It's amazing. That's Jesus' heart. It's not until we get that heart that we will be empowered to a bold, not obnoxious, pleading with people, as the Apostle Paul said, to be reconciled with God. To, to ask people if they're willing to come to Jesus. You know, we live in an age of change right now. Many of you were trained years ago, if you've been around the faith for a while, in these different apologetic techniques that, that you're like, they don't work anymore. And, and, and the young people that are here, don't ask me, ask them. They don't want people shoving it down their throat anymore. They just don't. They want people who are going to listen to them, people who are going to find out or are willing to hear what they believe, why they believe it, how they got to that point in time, find the common ground, and then work from there. 20, 30, 40 years ago, you brought, people to the, you, you brought the Bible to people. Now you've got to bring people to the Bible. It's a much more complicated path. But you know what? It's going to require for us to actually not have a head full of knowledge, but to have the heart of Jesus. To actually be willing to have engage people in conversations, not in some ridiculous fact dump on them. It's going to be a challenge for us. I welcome the challenge personally. I hope you do too. You see, we live in an area where we're going to have to explain something to certain people that they don't really understand. To those who would call themselves atheists and agnostics, there's one conversation. But those who would call themselves religious, there's another conversation. And with those people, that conversation is addressed right here. And it's simply this, that being religious cannot save you. Cannot save you. And you say, well, well, how would I have that discussion with someone? You bring them right to this passage. And I dare us to find virtually anybody in the United States of America who's more religious than these guys. This is the height of religiosity. This is something none of us will ever in our wildest dreams ever get close to. And Jesus says, you're going to wind up in hell why? Because they were not clean on the inside. They look good on the outside, but they were not clean on the inside. Only Jesus Christ can do that for you, friend. Only Jesus can, no matter what you, game you're playing, you have to turn to God, admit you're a sinner, and put your trust in Jesus Christ, tr trust in his perfect life, his death for your sins and for mine. And to prove that God was satisfied with everything he did, he rose him from the dead. And we put our trust in that and the power of God.
So today, one simple question as we end, are you willing? Jesus said, I wanted to take you in, but you were not willing. My question to you is, are you willing? Are you willing to let him take you in? Are you willing to come under his wing so the punishment for sins will not be for you, but they will be taken by Jesus? Are you willing to let Jesus move you from being blind to being able to see? Are you willing to let Jesus move you from being religious to knowing God? Are you willing to let Jesus move you from hell to heaven? Are you willing to let Jesus move you from woes to worship? If that's you, come on up front here after the service. There'll be people up front here to pray with you. And just say, today I want that. Or maybe there's something else in your life that you need help with. Maybe there's something inside your cup you know is dirty and it's wrong and you need the grace of God to help. We're not going to judge you. There's no perfect people praying with people up front here, trust me. Because the imperfect guy standing in this pulpit would never put perfect people up here. Only Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, let's stand and pray.